7 of the Walshing Apps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. I'm excited to be recording this episode live from Ventura, California at Craftcation. We're in a podcasting booth at the conference, and I have a guest here today whom I'm so excited to be meeting for the first time. Um, her name is Deborah Belmuth. Deborah Belmuth is the publisher at Story Publishing, where she began as a project editor in 1993. She loves to knit, cook, play with fabric, do origami, read, write, bike, hike, mm-hmm. and spend time in nature, all of which she gets to do often in and around her timber-framed home in the woods of western Massachusetts, and even sometimes as part of her work. Hi, Deborah. Hi, Abby. How are you? Great. Has the conference been going well for you? Oh, it's been great. Yeah, it's, it's been, been pretty awesome. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so um, let's start by talking a little bit about Story. Um, so Story publishes books on a wide variety of topics from raising animals to crafts to gardening, cooking, beer, mm-hmm. um, building, part-time business, and sort of mind-body things. And I wondered what you see as sort of uniting all of those different kinds of topics. And, like, what is Story's sort of guiding mission, if you had to describe it? Mm-hmm. Um, well, we're actually a little um, unusual for a publishing company because we actually do have a mission statement. So our mission, our formal mission statement is that we publish practical information that promotes personal independence in harmony with the environment. And... Um, that's a big umbrella, and from within that, there's a lot of opportunity for interpretation. But I like to say that our books are really springboards for people to engage with hands-on activities that enrich their experience of life. So all kinds of activities uh, apart from the screen, basically, and activities that really that that nourish us in so many ways. So we have organic gardening. Um, raising animals, raising your own food in, in many different ways, preparing your own food, um, and then nourishing your creativity through crafts uh, and nourishing your, your mind and your body through nature observation um, and creating your own shelter, building in, in your own home, um, all nourishing your own environment too. Okay, so then a lot of it is really hands-on. Would you say that that's... That's true. Yeah. 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 We've always really promoted hands-on activity. A lot of our books are what you would call how-to books um, that are instruction, um, teaching people how to do things. Right. Mm -hmm. And I know, I mean, I pay a lot of attention to the spines of books because Mm -hmm. I um, have written books and I write a lot about publishing and the craft publishing world. And so I'm one of these like people who's like, I know the publisher of all these different people's books, Mm -hmm. but I think most people and certainly myself (laughs) before I... (laughs) <laughs> got into doing this, I totally didn't pay attention to that and didn't even realize that there were different public. I mean, I don't know what I was thinking, but I, I just didn't notice. Yeah. And so for the people who are listening who maybe um, don't notice the spines of books, um, what are some craft titles? Because I think most people who listen to my mm-hmm. podcast are crafters. So what are some craft titles that stories publish that you know people might recognize and be like, oh, that's one of their books? Right. So, uh, well, we've done a lot of knitting books in the last few years, and the Once Gain Wonders series was one of the first series that we started, and now we're up to, we're about to release the seventh book in that series. Uh, One Yard Wonders in the Sewing Area is another series that we've done. Uh, Carrie Chapin's uh, Handmade Marketplace and Grow Your Handmade Business are two books that have been particularly successful for us. Recently, we've done... uh, 
Spruce, the step-by-step -step guide to upholstery with Amanda Brown, um, and let's see other books that uh, other craft books we've done several, kids some kids craft books sewing school and sewing school two which are great books yeah by Amy Plumley I know you've, you've spoken with her um, and uh, we've done a series of our knitting answer book crochet answer book a lot of crochet books uh, the Beyond the Square crochet motifs Edie Ekman's uh, series and uh, around the square. Uh, around the around the corner, uh, crochet borders is another one of hers. Okay, um, so that just sort of gives us a feel for. I'm right. sure listeners have sort of seen at least yeah. some, if not all, of those books mm -hmm. and, and mm -hmm. heard of those authors. And so all of those books are storybooks. Right. So people know. Okay, yeah. that's story yeah. publishing. That's why. Right. Then the craft right. area. That's sort of some of the right. things, the titles that right. you might um, recognize. Yeah. So I, I think that's helpful to people. Yeah. So so when you're working with an author and kind of developing an idea, you know what what kind of thing makes for a good how-to book. What kind of, you know, how do you make a good how-to book? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good question. I think, um, I think first of all, what I look for is someone who's really passionate about what what they do, and passionate in a way of just wanting to know everything about it, having explored uh, a lot of different approaches to the topic that they're writing about. Story is always we've always looked for authors that are really engaged in what they're doing first. And then hopefully they have writing skills too. because, <laughs> um, uh, But have really experimented and tried a lot of different approaches. And having taught what they do is often a very, makes for a very good um, author of a how-to book. Because if you've taught, if you tried to teach what you know to a lot of different people, you realize that everyone has a different learning style or a different approach. And we try to really cover that. I think a good how-to book thinks about all the different kinds of readers that might be using that book and how they might approach it. Some people are really visual and they want to have step-by-step -step photographs and aren't, aren't going to read the text. Other people want it really explained um, clearly and in depth in step-by-step -step text. Um, some people want a lot of background about the techniques or uh, troubleshooting. And I think all of those are aspects of a, of a strong how-to book and thinking about that. So other people want to look at the pictures and read the captions. And I'm always a big believer that the captions ought to be things that, uh, be pieces of text that could be read as individual units and not re read them and go, I have no idea what this means. I have to find the reference in the text to, for, uh, to ex understand this caption. So thinking about all the different ways that somebody might use the book um, is one of the aspects that I think makes for a successful how-to book is all those different elements of, oh, we have the step-by-step how-to, but somebody might make this mistake, so let's put this in a sidebar. In case this happened to you that, you know, your stitches, you, you, you dropped a stitch back the row before, this is what you do now. So that, I think, is, is part of what makes a really strong how-to book is thinking about all the different aspects of how somebody um, would be using the book or approaching the book. Absolutely. And I think mm -hmm. that um, teaching is such a good way to find that out because when you're sitting at home and you know very well how to do something, you assume that everybody sort of can understand it 
exactly the way that you're explaining it. When you go out into the world and you teach and you teach the same thing multiple times, inevitably everything can go wrong. So people misinterpret every different aspect <laughs> of it. And um, you start to realize, okay, I need to back up and always explain this step in, a, you know, in an extra way or whatever. And it, it's so, it really informs your work. And even if yeah. you don't um, write a how-to book, but you're just writing how-to instructions for a blog post or a free exactly. tutorial or something yeah. like that, if you've taught it to somebody else, that's going to be stronger. Yeah. So I think that's really good advice. Yeah. And it, it can be hard sometimes if you if you know something so well to think about taking it way back to the basics. So that's where an editor can actually be really helpful because I always say to our editors, well, you're the first avid reader of this book. you know. So as you look at the manuscript, assume you don't know anything and are you, are you learning enough to get you at every stage? Are you getting all the information you need to be successful with that step? Um, it's hard. I mean, it, you know, especially with hands-on activities that often when you're teaching, you realize, oh, I, I just need to demonstrate this with my hands as opposed to telling people. So that's another challenge with a how-to book is how do you put this into words? And the images are a big part of it. We do a lot of planning and um, thinking about all the steps that need to be photographed. And I always say to an editor, you know, whenever, or as I'm editing, I'm thinking, wherever I start to think, I need to visualize what, I'm trying to visualize in my mind what this looks like. Or sometimes you'll see our editors sitting at their desk with their knitting needles or their, or, or their sewing, and they're like, I just had to try this because I needed to see, explain how it, you know, how it's this three-dimensional thing, how am I going to explain it in, in text or even in a, in a photograph? Right. So a few questions come up for me. One mm-hmm. is, um, are the editors always people who know how to do that particular craft? So I have found that that is not necessarily true. Mm-hmm. At least in one book, that one of my two books, um, my editor was a potter. Mm-hmm. He was awesome. He mm-hmm. was a great editor. Uh, this is the editor for Stuffed Animals. And he was a great editor. He did not sew at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just wonder if that's yeah. true at story or not. Like, are your editors uh, proficient in the in the book, the topic of the book they're editing? Um, not always, you know. And I think that's, of course, what makes our part of what makes our job so interesting is that we're always getting to learn. We get a new book. One of the first books when I joined Story in 1993, the first book I was handed was on beekeeping, and I didn't know anything about beekeeping. Um, and a lot of our books are assuming that you're a beginner, so. In that way, the editor is a good is is a good test of how uh, clear the book is. But I have found it, it's hard to have somebody editing a knitting book who doesn't know how to knit, uh, because they can introduce more mistakes than <laughs> actually uh, by thinking that oh this isn't clear at all. And it's like actually, if you have basic knitting skills, you will understand that. So there are, but I think um, craft. I think being a crafter in general, um, or having an affinity for crafts, or having done crafts. I guess that's the one thing. If you've done crafts, um, then I think you're qualified to to edit most craft books. Interesting. Yeah. I, mm-hmm. I would agree with you that knitting would be a hard one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just jump into without knowing yeah. what, what the lingo was. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. Um, and so the other question that, or the other idea that came up for me was about... Um, Sort of the step-by-step photo. So when I have done step-by-step photos for for my books and for my patterns in the past, um, it's really been sort of up to me as the author to sort of decide, you know, I need – or actually – in one book, the photos, I, I flew out to Denver and I did all of the photos at Interweave. And in the other book, I did all of the photos of my own and it was completely up to me. Where I was like, I think we need a photo for this step. I don't think we need one for this step, that sort of thing. So um, uh, so how does it work at Story? Do your authors 
take their own photos? Sometimes, always, do they, you know, have to prepare all the step outs and then come to you and you guys take the photos? And um, and how do you help an author to determine which steps need photos and, and which steps you probably don't need in a, you mm-hmm. know, a photo illustration? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good question. And we, we ask our authors, to, as, as they're writing the manuscript, to prepare a preliminary uh, su- list of suggested photographs and or illustrations. Because in some craft books, in some cases, illustration may be clearer than photography. Um, knitting is one of those cases where in many, and crochet too, in many cases, it could actually be easier to have an illustration um, clearer than to kind of get the hands out of the way of seeing what's happening with the yarn. But in any case, we ask, we ask the author to prepare a suggested list and submit that with the manuscript. And then as the editor's working through it, she she or he reviews that list and may uh, add to it, may take away from it. And we've actually, we do book budgets uh, before we contract for the book. And so we have a target number of illustrations or photographs that we're going for. Um, but we, that number can change if we decide, oh, this book really needs more. Um, so then the editor will confer with the author, send them a revised photography or illustration list, and... Then the photo shoot, we commission the photographer um, and, and, and a stylist if we, need, if we feel we need a stylist. And it, it varies. Sometimes we need the author to be there, if like a knitting book where we uh, want the author, or, or a sewing book in some cases where we want the author to actually be demonstrating the techniques. Um, others, the authors prepare a lot of the, the step-outs or um, swatches ahead of time. And in that case, um, with some of our knitting books, actually, we've talked to the author just at the point that we contract for the book. We actually start talking about what yarn are you thinking of using? What color palette? Can we talk about what the, what the color palette for the whole book can we, will be? And can we establish a palette that we can both agree on? Um, and they may get the yarn donated by a yarn company. Or, um, but in any case, we try to think early on about what the, what the photography is going to be like and... Um, so we do have a, we, and we work with a lot of different photographers. Um, and in some cases, like our One Yard Wonders series, I know we've sent those projects to a photographer and stylist, and there has ne- the art director hasn't even needed to go. Um, I think the art director did go on the first, the, the first time that we did one of those books. But if we send specific instructions, like which the authors actually have been really good about doing. Be sure to show the back of this with the buttons, you know, and, and have a shot of that. Um, and then in other cases, we might have bring the author out to our offices for a week sometimes. Uh, it can take a week or two to do a photo shoot. Um, the Spruce Upholstery book was amazing because we, we set up that photo shoot at Amanda Brown's um, upholstery shop in Austin, Texas, and our art director went out there for a week, and they worked together on Amanda cleared out a whole room of her of her um, business and just did the uh, f- to spend basically four weeks doing the, the step-by-step photographs. And the art director was there for the first week, got them going, and then Amanda and the photographer continued on for the next three weeks. Wow, that's amazing. So, that's so, going to create a really good yeah, book. Yeah. yeah, so our art directors are very involved with that, as are the editors, but we're really, we really try to envision. Um, and the other thing that we'll do sometimes is we'll do actually do sample page designs before we do the photography. Um, we did that with our uh, knitting book, Cast on Bind Off, which is in this uh, very distinctive format, and we wanted to be sure that the photos were going to 
to uh, fit in these small horizontal slots in the page. So having slotted out the photo, the, the designer actually slotted out with gray squares. This is where the photos are going to go. This is how many on a page. Then when they were actually taking the photos, the photographer was actually had a, they could actually have a, a cue on their photo, on the, um, on the camera to see this is what it's going to look like when we crop it. Uh, yeah. the, the way that the, that we that the art directors planned the photo to appear on the page. That's so there's a lot of different ways, yeah. and, we're, and we're flexible. You know, with each book, we we think about what's the the most effective way to do um, to do the photography. So you were um, initially hired at Story in 1993. Mm-hmm. So you've been there for a long while yeah, now. Yeah. Um, and you were the pro- project editor, right, mm-hmm. when you first mm-hmm. came on. Yeah. And now you're the publisher. Yeah. So that's been a journey. And yeah. um, so I just wanted to know a little bit about, like, what does it mean now to be a publisher? What does that, you know, what does that mm-hmm. mean? You're the mm-hmm. publisher. So what does that right. mean? What is your job? Yeah, so it's been, it has been a really interesting journey. Um, and... I never thought that I would be there for this long, but it's it's always uh, it's it's such an engaging. Uh, our books are so engaging, and I I just always find it so interesting. And I I love shaping the books, and that's always been what I've done as an editor. And then I slowly grew into doing acquisitions, which meant acquiring new books and finding authors, working with authors who sent us proposals. And so I did that for quite a while, and then I became the editorial director. Um, which was kind of an organic growth for me that I just uh, had been there for quite a while and um, providing oversight to the other editors and taking the lead in overseeing um, the the guidelines for our editorial department, uh, our editorial processes. And then as publisher, which I've been doing now for uh, the last year and a half, my job is really to oversee the publishing program. So the main, one of the main parts of that is deciding what books we're going to publish and really developing it as a list. So uh, publishers, we publish two lists a year. We have a fall list and a spring list is how we kind of break up our books. We publish every month, but in in terms of the publishing industry and the way we present our materials to our sales reps, we do that twice a year. So we divide it. So I look at the whole list and think, oh, what's the balance in this list? And as I said, you know, we have some gardening books. We have some craft books. We have some building books. Um, we have a, a whole variety of books. And we think about, I think about what's the best time to release this book. Is this a gift book? Is, should it be coming out for the holiday season? Should it be coming out uh, for New Year, New You? And, uh, sh- or should it be coming, you know, what are the, what the best timing for a book to release? And I also... Um, so I oversee that, and I also oversee the development of all of our books. So I work really closely with our creative director and the whole editorial department, um, reviewing page proofs of all the books in process and overseeing the kind of story look to all of our books. Um, and those are the primary functions that I do. I, I work closely with our managing editor in our contracts, our, um, our author contracts, our our scheduling of books, um, and then I also work. I, I, I and I'm also very involved with the marketing of our books. So overseeing now, I'm um, recently taken over overseeing the marketing and publicity department, which I really enjoy because the, the marketing and 
of a book really begins at the very kernel of an idea, um, I find, in the editorial process of what's the, posi- what's the key thing about this book? Why should we publish it? What makes it exciting? What makes it different from other books that are out there? Why should this book be out there? What would people really want? And that is really follows the book all the way through the process. And when I'm looking at page proofs, I think, is the book delivering on what we promised? Of the, is it, is it, or is it, is it growing and expanding and promised and delivering on, a, on even more or a little different angle? And I, then we need to fine-tune the marketing positioning and so that when we communicate this to our sales reps um, and to the retailers who are going to buy our books, we want to be able to say very succinctly, this is what this book is. This is why you should carry it. Um, and then the, the back cover copy delivers on that and speaks to the, the consumer, too, so that it's clear to understand what the book is. And how many books are on the fall list and on the spring list? We do about 40 to 45 books a year. So Half and half. Yeah, so, so it's about 20 on each book, on each list. list. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And about how many of those around are craft, or does it vary list by list? Year yeah, by year? yeah. I'd say, you know, five or six of them okay. on each list. It's really grown in the yeah. last 10 years when we've seen this amazing resurgence of, of energy in the craft area. Um, it's been interesting, actually. We weren't, for a long time, we weren't doing a lot of craft books. Uh, we, we always dreamed about doing knitting books because we have guides uh, to raising sheep. And we, always, we were in touch with that audience, but we always felt like, well, the knitting audience is kind of small. Interweave at that time had a lot of knitting books that were really speaking to the avid knitter. Um, and then we started to see this increase of interest in knitting and thought, well, maybe there is a place for us in this, and started publishing knitting books. And it's been fun, too. To Lately, we've been getting into spinning. Uh, we have our first weaving book coming out um, next fall, so that's going to be exciting for us. Um, and we've also done some books like the Fleece and Fiber Source book that mm-hmm. is a bridge between the, the people that are raising their sh- the sheep and the the uh, the knitters and the and the fiber artists. Mm-hmm. So makers and crafters and DIYers of all different types um, are invited to put together a proposal for a mm-hmm. book um, and submit it to Story if they're mm-hmm. interested. And you have a really great guide, I feel like, on the Story website, um, which um, which helps people to put together that proposal. And I feel like not every publisher has mm-hmm. such a good guide. Your guide mm-hmm. is particularly good. Oh, good. And I feel like even if you're submitting to a different publisher, go and yeah. look at the story guide because it's very um, succinct and it gives you an outline of exactly what a publisher might be looking for in mm-hmm. a good proposal. So that's super valuable good. and a great contribution just generally, <laughs> yeah. I feel like. Um, so, and, and I just wonder how many uh, new proposals are coming past your desk in a given, let's say, like in a week? I mean, it, it, I, you know, I think in, sometimes people imagine uh, publishers all sort of being like fiction, people publish fiction, right. where you've got like this slush pile that's right. just like, right. you know, nobody ever looks at it except some intern and right. you know, you know, yeah. the editor or the publisher never yeah. even sees most of that stuff. Yeah. Um, and I know, I know that that's not the case in, right. in DIY and it's yeah. not the case in craft. So I just wonder, so how many are coming by maybe your desk or, or the mm-hmm. acquisitions editor mm-hmm. at this point's desk? Mm-hmm. And, um, and then what you look for, mm-hmm. you know, so which... How do you go through those proposals and say, mm, this one might be, you know, a good mm-hmm, one? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, in terms of craft proposals, it's a little hard to say. I might, maybe we get two or three every week or two, I would say. Uh, I wouldn't say that we're inundated with craft proposals necessarily, but the way story works, we often um, 
we're always talking to the authors that we've worked with before. We really like to cultivate relationships with our authors and help them build their platform. And if there's more than one, if somebody has more than one book in them, we'd prefer that they continue to work with story so that we can sell all of their books together, which I think really keeps, it, it helps the author and it helps story. Um, but in, a, in terms of a proposal, in terms of the ones when I open it up and I'm like, oh, this is interesting. I mean, the first thing I would say is, if it's actually written and directed to uh, somebody, to, to either me personally or our, our craft editor, um, Gwen Stege, at this point, because having your name on it makes a big difference. So, and then, and then we do have a versus list. Versus saying, like, to whom, versus, it, may to whom it may concern. Exactly. Or, or dear, dear editor. editor. Yeah, exactly. Or like exactly. That. To take yeah. the time to find out who is the person, right. and that yes. is listed on the site, so it's possible it to find that exactly. information. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it may not be possible on every with every publisher, but I think generally if you dig a little bit, you can find the name of the It shows uh, that you truly investigated. Exactly. That you really, you know, this is the publisher you're cultivating. Yes, Mm -hmm. yes. And sometimes other things that catch my eye in a a good cover letter are, um, well, acknowledgement of knowing whose story is. So mention of another story title. I'm a fan of this story title, or I know I, I saw this book that you did, and it made me think of that you might be an appropriate publisher for, for my book. Which is showing that the author has done research. And I know before I pitched my first book, I went to Barnes & Noble right. and I pulled every craft book off the shelf. Mm-hmm. And I looked at every single one. And at the spine, like I said, yes. I've become a big yeah. fan of spines. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and at every publisher. Yeah. And yeah. I was like, what is Northlight? Exactly. What, like, and who is Interweave? Yeah. Which of these looks like my book in my exactly. head. Exactly. That's exactly. I mean, I think that that makes a huge difference is to to know who the publishers are. And I always say that to authors too, to potential authors that, yeah, to do that kind of research really makes a difference. Um, the other thing I would say is to have a title for your book. It may not be, and certainly you can't be set on what the final title is, but a title that describes your book accurately. And it, it doesn't have to be a clever title at that point, but it really helps to, sometimes I'm reading and it's, there's descriptive text, but I'm like, well, what is, what's the hook here? You know, what is the, what is the topic? So if it's, even if it's like 20, 20, uh, 20 knitting projects with variegated yarn, at least I know right away, okay, that, that's probably not a, a succinct title, but it tells me right away, I'd like you to consider my new my, my book proposal on 20 knitting projects with variegated yarn. Which really, it's almost like an elevator pitch because right. it shows that you've honed their idea enough to be able to give one title to the entire concept, exactly. which honestly is not that easy yes. until you spend <laughs> some time on your own working on it. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. And then I would say the other thing with craft proposals that really catches my eye is the presentation. Um, crafters have, if, 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 you can put, if you can put your proposal in a folder or in some kind of presentation that represents your work and your, and your, um, your crafting or your artistry in some way, it's really nice. And maybe some, sometimes it might just be um, some nicely laid out pages, um, how you, where you present photography, I think showing photos of, of examples of your work is really helpful and important in a craft proposal. Um, a, a nice presentation. I'm not saying do, do page layouts and say this is how I want my book laid out, but I think um, a nice presentation and something, something interesting. And are these, um, I mean, do most people submit digitally or do most people submit hard copy or both? I mean, I did both of mine digitally, and I feel like digital is sort of 
Digital is fine. It, yeah, but I get a lot. Um, I, I like getting them physically, actually, you know, finding them in my mailbox, too. I mean, digitally, it's a little bit, they can get a little bit overlooked. Um, I do have, like, an active, active proposals folder in my, in my uh, email that I immediately put them into that folder. But um, having but them physically on my, yeah, 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 having them physically yeah, on my desk, that, can make a difference mm-hmm. sometimes. That's a good tip. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like it's so easy to do it digitally and to have to mm-hmm. print things and make that presentation uh, physically, it can make a little bit more yeah. of a memorable impact. That's a good one. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so I know um, I know you've worked with author contracts, which you mentioned, and so I just wanted, this is a, like a fine-tuned point, but I just wanted, since you have expertise, mm-hmm. why not ask? Sure. Um, so Story offers both work for hire and standard royalty contracts. And those are two different things. And I think a lot of people sort of first getting into this don't necessarily know what is the difference between that. So what is work for hire and what is that sort of contract and payment situation look like? Mm -hmm. And what is a standard royalty contract and how does that work? Mm -hmm. So work for hire means that you're actually selling your work to the publisher. So you've written it, but you're you're selling the rights to the um, to the publisher, and that the publisher can then publish that and go out and sell it, and could publish it in multiple formats if they wanted, or if it was a project book, then they could take the projects and divide them up and sell them individually. I mean, the, it would be up to the publisher how to do that. Now, is is they would own the work and could publish it, um, and it's for the lifetime of the work that they that they could keep it going. We actually don't do very many work-for-hire contracts anymore. The advantage of a work-for-hire contract is, is that you're going to be paid up front for your work. And if, you're, if you think about it, often I think magazine writing might be like this often, but if, you might think, oh, well, that's what I'd like is to be paid $15,000 one time and I'm happy to have the publisher go and sell it, and I don't have any risk. There's no risk to me. doesn't matter how many copies they sell. Or, they don't, don't, sell. or don't sell, exactly. Or, you know, if they, if they find that it's, it's a failure, I don't have, there's no risk involved on my part, and I've gotten paid for it. Um, most of our contracts now are, are, are royalty contracts, um, and that's really our preference, too. Uh, so with a royalty contract... You hold the copyright to your work. You're licensing the publisher the right to publish that work, but you continue to hold the copyright. And I guess I didn't make that completely clear. With work for hire, the publisher then owns the copyright, so you would actually be selling the copyright to story. Um, But in a royalty contract, you hold the copyright, which means that it's still your work. And if at some point Story decides that we're not going to continue to publish this, you could say, okay, I'd like my rights back now. I have the copyright, and then you could do what you wanted with that. You could go to another publisher. You could self-publish it. You could. And the other thing that about a royalty contract is, is that you get a percentage of every sale of the book for the lifetime of as long as the book is selling. So you're invested in promoting the book, we, we believe, so that it continues to sell. Um, and it's almost a partnership because you as the publishers are invested in it as well. Exactly. And so if I'm the author and you're the publisher and we both are invested because we both right. earn income when each right. copy sells, then we're working together as a team to sell that book together. Exactly. Yeah. And that's really, I mean, that's, 
the approach that we really like. It's a collaborative approach. We're working as a team, and we're both invested in it for the lifetime of the book. And with a royalty contract, what you do is get uh, you'll receive an advance against royalties. So that means you do get some money up front, but it's basically uh, we calculate that based on what we actually believe the author we actually do sales projections for a book before we contract for it. So if we say we think we can sell 10,000 copies of this book in the first year it's out, then we calculate if the book was priced at 1995, how much would the author we would anticipate the author would earn in in royalties for the first year. If it's priced at 1995 and we sell it at a 50% discount, which means that the book is is $10, $10 is coming in. And a percentage of that is going to go to the author. Say 10% or something like that. Something like that. And, um, you know, somewhere in the, like 6 to 10% or somewhere in that range. And so, yeah, so if it was was $10 that came in and then um, 10% of that would be... A dollar. So the author ends a dollar book, and we think we're going to sell 10,000 copies. Mm -hmm. That would be Mm $10,000. We actually use that as our guideline for advances. For the advance. So you're anticipating how much the author will earn back in royalties in a year, and you front them that. Exactly. And so after – so they use that money to sort of – keep things going while they're writing the book, which frankly exactly. takes about a year right. to write the whole book. Right. And so they're using that 10,000 or less. Right. Yeah, they get half of, yeah, they get half of it. Up. Yeah. Get half of it on signing the contract usually. And the other half after delivery of the, the manuscript. manuscript and the, and us deciding, yes, it's, it's complete as we, if it, it meets the agreements of the contract. Right. But yes, that's, and then, and then, and then the book comes out, which takes another year. Right. And then, um, and then that whole first year, you're not going to earn anything because right. you've already earned. Right. And then you're going to wait until exactly. you're going to start to earn back. Exactly. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And if you're out there promoting and we sell 15,000 copies instead of 10,000 copies, you're going to start to earn royalties sooner. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we, and if we end up only selling 5,000 copies, then it's going to take, you know, and if we sell 5,000 the next year, so that it's going to take two years to earn that off that advance. So that's kind of the mutual risk that we both take. Um, I think, you know, that's the risk that the author takes in a way is, um, but most of our authors story likes to keep our books. We, we like to keep our books in print for a long time. We like to invest in our books and keep them in print. Um, we have books that have been in print for, 30 years. I mean, we'll go back and do a revision sometimes of a book that um, we just did a second edition actually of Carrie Chapin's Handmade Marketplace. It's like, it's time for a refresh. Maybe we can we can refresh the sales. We can present it to our sales team again and say, this is a new edition. Now it's got information on Instagram that wasn't there, but you know, that wasn't around when she did the first book. So it gives the book a new push. And um, so by continuing, by keeping our book in print for, uh, our books in print for a long time, it it keeps the income stream going for both the author and the uh, publisher. Yeah, and I actually think that that's a little unusual maybe. I'm maybe, mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure, but mm-hmm. um, I know that my first book came out in 2011, and it did very well, I feel like, but it is now going out of print. Mm-hmm. Um, so whatever's left in the warehouse, that's yeah. all there is. Yeah. And um, and I had a royalty contract, so the rights yeah. do revert back to me. Right. So once the, the stock is sold, I will get those rights back, right. and I can do with it what I want. Right. But it is not going to be in print by that publisher any right. longer. Yeah, different, uh, different publishers have different models in terms of how they approach that and how much revenue they're, they're trying to get from their what we call backlist of the books that have been previously published versus front list and story has tradi- has traditionally 
um, looked at the backlist as, as a strong source of revenue. So we've been very invested in, in, in keeping that going. Okay. Mm-hmm. And um, so let me ask you this question about to authors and publicity. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I feel like there was a long period of time in craft book publishing when the blog tour was like mm-hmm. a big deal. Yeah. Um, so as soon as you were getting ready to launch the book, you'd organize a blog tour, identify 10, 15 bloggers who you thought had a lot like reach, mm-hmm. um, who had the right kind of audience, and then you'd send them a free copy of the book. Right. They'd maybe make a project, maybe not do a giveaway, maybe not, or whatever. And every single day, there'd be a different one for two weeks, and then it would be over. And that was the launch. And I feel like it got old. I mean, for me, it got old. It got tired, yeah. It got tired. (laughs) It worked, but then Mm -hmm. it sort of didn't didn't work. And I wonder if you have some thoughts on a better way or a new way or a creative way. What's working now online for promoting a book from the author perspective? Yeah, that's a good question. I think we definitely look to the authors to be to come up with inventive ideas for doing that. Um, and I'm thinking about let's see, if I can think of some. Um, I mean, one of the things that's worked really well. I, mean, I think Carrie Chapin has done it in her books, and we've seen it with our One Skein Wonders and our One Yard Wonders. Is this the craft community is so the craft world is so community oriented that having uh, the community in the book somehow is then there's a community of people that are really invested in in promoting the book as well. So it's not just the author that's promoting it, but all of the people that are in the book. And Carrie, you know, in Handmade Marketplace, she wanted to celebrate the people that had inventive ideas in in um, handmade businesses or had done interesting things. And then all those people were excited to be included in the book as well. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing that I think has been very successful for us. Um, I think uh, video seems to be working well for some of our authors that um, people who are maybe filming a trailer. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or a series of how to videos. We've been talking about that with, with more of our authors. Um, yeah, those are yeah, ideas I think that video I think of right great. now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I had a trailer for my second book, which I funded myself. I mean, mm. I hired a videographer and we mm. made the trailer um, because Lark had no budget for it. They mm-hmm. were supportive, but yeah. they were like, that's on you. Yeah. So I used my advance, a portion of my advance, to pay for that. Mm. And um, it was awesome. I yeah. mean, I it was so worth the money, for sure. Yeah. So anyway, you can do it yourself if you don't right. have you know, funds to do it. And, um, it's entirely possible. It took a day and it was really worth it. So, you know, you can get inventive and yeah, Yeah. get creative. Yeah. Yeah. And we've been talking at story about how we can get creative with video, even of helping the authors. And even because we're a staff that really like to be engaged with the things that uh, our books are about, we're, we're starting to think about how we could do some video that, um, that gets that we can help promote the books by there's there's staff that are brewing beer and uh, some of the things that we're doing and trying out some of the techniques in some of our books and how we can show some of that ourselves as well. Yeah, I love video. Oh. I think video yeah. is super effective. Yeah. Um, and okay, so let's talk a little bit about agents. Just on the last note mm-hmm. about sort of contracts and mm-hmm. um, that kind of yeah. you know, legal part of things. Yeah. Um, 
I didn't work with an agent. Um, I know many people who did work with an agent um, and both had good and bad experiences in all different ways. I did work with a lawyer, I will say, Mm -hmm. who reviewed my contract and helped me to figure out how to negotiate. But then I did the negotiations on my own. Um, But that's certainly not for everyone. So I just wondered, what do you think about agents? So if if an author comes to you without one Mm -hmm. or with one, what goes on in your mind? It actually doesn't make any difference to me whether an author comes with an agent or without an agent. Um, I think... I think the value of an agent is if you're having trouble getting your foot in the door with a with a publishing company. If there's a particular publisher that you really want to get the attention of and you've tried, or you want to get the attention of one of the larger publishers, um, I think an agent can be really helpful there. Um, and different agents have contacts, have different specialties and contacts with, with different publishers. Um, and agents have brought me some great some great ideas that I wouldn't have heard about otherwise. But I always find it a little odd when an author, we've talked about an idea, we've actually even gone back and forth a little bit on a proposal, and then we're getting close to a contract, and then the author says, well, now I'm going to get it, now I have an agent. And the thing about an agent, you know, is that um, they earn a percentage of the sales of the book for the lifetime of the book. And it's usually like 15% of the, of, uh, uh, of your uh, of your proceeds of your your share of the fifteen percent of the advance right and it's fifteen percent of all future royalties for the lifetime of the exactly book. just exactly. to be clear yeah. and so you know it might cost you a thousand dollars let's say in legal fees right. to have a good lawyer who understands intellectual property who right. specializes in the field of publishing mm-hmm. to look at your contract with you and you might right. think oh my gosh I'm spending all this money now that's my like part exactly. of my advance is gone yeah. but it's a one-time fee right so it's done you mm-hmm. paid for it and right. it's done you have their legal advice so you know you have to weigh the odds, and you each do. person's going to make a decision differently. One other thing I feel like an agent can do, and we're talking about first of all, you do want to select an agent who specializes in craft publishing, exactly. who has knowledge of the field, yeah. because there are agents who are great at cookbooks and other exactly. things. And if you get in with yeah. the wrong agent, you're not going to get anywhere. Right. So there's that. But the other thing is that an agent can help you develop your idea exactly. until it's publisher ready. Right. And so if you feel like I have an idea, I need help developing this. What are they looking for? How do I get from A to B? Right. The agent can be the person in between who helps you develop it and get exactly. it ready. And then when you send it to Deborah, she's like, this is refined. This right. looks great. It's polished. It's perfect. It's got a good title. It's got everything Deborah looks right. for. Right. And so if you're not sure how to get there, an agent can help with that exactly. as well. And that yeah. maybe is worth the fee. Yeah, I think it may be worth the fee. And I think, you know, as, as you said, um, I, I think... Um, I mean, I think that an agent actually, uh, a lawyer, that you can actually have a lawyer review your contract. And we've even had people who have a lawyer negotiate the contract, too. Um, You can actually pay a one-time fee, and, and, and some lawyers will actually do that as well, and we're open to that. Um, and right, so you could have a lawyer negotiate and send right, an agent. Right, interesting. Yeah. It just depends on what you need. Exactly. Um, yeah. I do think, though, having somebody with expertise look at your contract besides the publisher and besides your, you know, your mom yes. is a good idea. Yeah. Unless I your mom's agree. lawyer, but yeah. Um, but yeah, I do think so. Yeah. Um, because the language, although you might understand what the words mean how they're going to be applied in the future, and what in all different kinds of contacts that they imply. Is very difficult to understand. Right. It just yeah. is. Yeah. And I mean, that's why people go to law school. Yeah. 
Yeah. No, and you want to understand your contract. I mean, the worst thing is when an author comes back, sees their first royalty statement, and says, well, I didn't know that this was going to happen. And it's like, well, it is defined in your contract, actually. Right. So it's really good to know the parameters of what – I mean, our contract is a fairly standard publishing contract, but there are things in there that it's – it's really good to know exactly what you're going in, you're getting in for. Right, and if somebody comes and to you and to. says, "I'd like to negotiate this particular point," right, um, I, you know, I do think it's important to emphasize that at that point, you're not like, "Well, because you asked to negotiate, we no longer want to be, we don't want to work with you not. anymore." Yes. You know, yes. how dare you? Yeah. How dare yeah. you try yeah, exactly. to, you know, stand up for your own rights? Yeah. Like that's not yeah. no. what's going through your head. No, and in fact, it might even be, might maybe I'm guessing what be going through your head would be actually they're a professional. Right. They have a business. Exactly. They are smart. Right. They should yes. th- be thinking critically. Right. And so actually you're thinking of them in, be- in a better light, not right. in a worse light because they dare to say X, Y, and Z. Exactly. And not every point is negotiable, but good right. for you for asking. Exactly. Yeah. No, and we definitely – we appreciate those questions and we like to explain our contract. And it's important to, to feel that you're being fairly treated from the beginning and that nothing is being um, – that the wool isn't being pulled over your eyes in some way, you know, and that it, that that you've been taken advantage of. Exactly, because so. then when the book does launch and come out, you feel good about it. The author, exactly. the publisher, feels good about it, and you can promote that book and you know feel like the whole thing was a good experience yeah. for sure. Yeah. Okay, um, all right. So I I wanted to think back a little bit about how craft publishing has changed because I think you have a unique perspective in that you were there in '93. Which, you know, I started college in 1993. I was a freshman at Johns Hopkins that year. And that was the year I got an email address. I went to to college. Mm -hmm. And halfway through the year, they were like, here's a thing. It's email. And um, and here's your address. And they gave it to me. And and we had no internet in the the dorm room. Nothing. Uh, And and so so that was 1993. And, um, And that was your first year at Story. And now things have sure changed. So just tell me a little bit about, you know, what was publishing like? Like sort of what what strikes you as being, (laughs) wow, things have changed. Now now I get to reveal what an antique (laughs) I am. (laughs) But uh, yeah, because sometimes I think, how did we communicate before email? (laughs) What happened? Oh, I I think we wrote memos and put them in each other's boxes. And one thing that I kind of miss actually is I do remember spending hours on the phone with authors. We used to talk a lot more. We'd have phone conversations. Now it's all pretty much email you know, correspondence, a lot of it. I mean, we certainly can get on the phone, but it's like, can we set up a time to get on the phone? Um, we never used to have to do that. And um, when I first started at Story, we actually were editing our manuscripts on paper, and we were using scissors and cutting out pieces of the manuscript and taping, retaping them, moving chapters around, and, and it was, um, and then sending them out for typing, you know, which was actually um, data entry at that time. We did uh, Story because we're actually located in a fairly rural location in, in Western Massachusetts, and so we've actually been fairly um, progressive in, in adapting new technology sooner than some of the New York publishers that haven't had to, that have always had a typesetter, for instance, around the corner. I actually, when I started at Story, they were already, the designers were already on those, the, the first, I guess, little Macs with the tiny, uh, and working in PageMaker and doing the page layout. So while the editors were working on paper, we would then send everything out in the end and, and we'd get a hard disk, a, flop, a hard floppy disk, and then we'd hand that over to the designer, and they would actually do the layout and page maker. But what I heard 
from not long before I started there was that they were still driving 20 miles to, to pick up type from a typesetter. And then if there was a, a letter, you know, a spelling mistake, they'd have to go drive the 20 miles again to get the, the corrected uh, type. And were the books so, printed overseas then? No, they weren't. And that, that's changed a lot, actually, for its story. When I first started there, most of our books were black and white. In fact, we were doing no color printing at all. So all of our books were black and white and pretty much all illustrated. Sometimes we used um, photographs. And some of the early books that I worked on in terms of the craft area were um, were actually in the kind of herbal area, the herbal body book, which we did in 1995, and then soon after we did the natural soap book by Susan Miller-Cavage. And those books are two-color with just line illustrations. And they're still in print, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is great, actually. Yeah. Um, so that, yeah, they've been in print for a long time. And But that's all of the books were um, were pretty much one or two-color. And they and, were printed here in the U.S. And they were printed in the U.S. And then at what point, I mean, I know my books were all printed in China. Right. And so there was this lag between, okay, right. the book is finished, the manuscript's complete, everything exactly. is done, yeah. and now it goes to China. Yeah. And we wait for China to send it back. Right. Right. Like this, right. right? this three-month, four-month yes. period. Yes, right, when it comes back on yeah. an imagining yes. container. Exactly. Yeah, like <laughs> yeah. on a ship. Yeah. Am I right? Yes, you're have, right. Comes yes. back on a boat. Yes. Okay, yes. <laughs> this is sort of crazy. Yeah. So. Well, then that, that recent uh, slowdown in the ports, really, yeah. we had books bobbing on, bobbing out at sea there for oh a while. Gosh. So that's so, stressful. So, yeah. so when did that happen? Do you Remember when that it's shift interesting happened? to say. Um, I would say that interesting. I would say like in around in the late um, probably around ninety eight, ninety nine, close to two thousand was when we really started to explore uh, full color printing. Before that, there was a little period where we. Were buy, there were quite a few packagers, British packagers that, that cropped up that were, and they were doing a lot of creative craft books. Quarto was one of the first companies. Now they have U.S. companies, but they would uh, prepare ideas for craft books and we would buy them. So that we did um, when our first, we actually did a, a color soap making book and a candle making book, but we were, they were delivering us finished books. They were um, New Holland Publishing, that's what was one of them that we were buying uh, the American rights to those books. So that's how we started was in, in craft publishing, getting color. And then we started thinking maybe we could do this ourselves. You know, could we, could we do this? And so we started exploring it. And um, I have to say some of our early books, and then we started adding color sections first to, to some of our books and still printing domestically. Um, and then some of our, some of the first color books that we, the color craft books that we did overseas, um, we did some early books on papermaking with Helen Hebert. I think that was one of the early ones that we did, papermaking with plants, and um, that was one of the first that we did in color. Okay, uh, so is it something about the color printing process that has to be done in an overseas factory? Because, yeah. I don't know, I, I'm yeah. imagining, are there like, uh, regulations regarding inks or environmental concerns. I, I'm wondering why, or just it's just too expensive for labor in the U.S. I mean, so it sounds yeah. like the the desire for full color books was right. what drove the yeah. move overseas. Yeah. And I just wonder why can't we have that here? Well, yeah, it's a good question, and I'd like to see more of it here too. I think uh, from what I'm hearing from our production director. First of all, a lot of it has to do with the quality of the printing, and I and the paper that's available is um, that the overseas, overseas is is 
generally uh, is, is different from what we get domestically. And for full color printing, heavier paper that really takes the ink well. Um, and a lot of it has to do with the binding style too, the sewn bindings. Um, but all of this is really comes down to price in the end. You can get that do done domestically. Um, we haven't been as happy with the quality that we've gotten, but it can cost double or triple. Um, lately, we've been doing some of our color printing in Canada, actually. There's a couple printers there that um, we've had more competitive pricing, and we keep getting pricing. There are companies now that have plants both in China and the U.S., so we've been getting pricing from both plants and, and trying to trying to see if we can get more done domestically. Yeah, interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, all right, so um, I'm thinking now about all the free content that's mm -hmm. out on the web mm -hmm. and on Pinterest and on blogs mm -hmm. and everywhere, and especially on YouTube mm -hmm. uh, for craft content. And, you know, there's so much of it. Um, now, granted... It's not curated, so you don't know what you're getting, and you have to slog through a right. lot to be able to find the one expert who truly can teach you the skill that you're looking to learn. Right. And so, uh, you know, a trusted publisher is great for that. So I and I just wanted you to sort of think about how how do how-to books stay relevant and stay useful to people in this age of like just so much excessive free, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think all the things that you mentioned of of curated content that um, from an expert is is a big part of it. Um, but I do think there are other things that are appealing, and we think about it a lot. I mean, we're doing all of our books; we're releasing them as eBooks now at the same time that we release the, the print book, and we're actually producing our eBooks in house. Um, our craft books are a great example where we really felt like when we sent it out to an, a service bureau that would do it, we had so many elements in our books, the illustrations and the photographs and the captions and the sidebars, that they were getting all jumbled up um, and we needed greater quality control. So we're building our eBooks in-house and we have a template that we've developed in, uh, to create a really successful eBook. But, um, but at the same time that we've been doing that, we've been thinking more with every book as we're developing it. We think, what can we, how can we make this book feel really special? So is there something, what, should, what would be the perfect trim size for it? How should it feel in your hands? What, what, what should the paper feel like? And our art directors think a lot about the cover, and um, our creative director, director likes to say layering it with love. So it's like, how many things can we do to make this book feel special? Sometimes it's printing on the inside covers or, or thinking about... Um, the, some special texture on the outside cover, or maybe it's a combination of gloss and matte, and we're always weighing the costs of these things. The art directors are all saying, could I have rounded corners on this book? Um, could there be a spiral binding so that, that with some of our craft, our crochet books, especially the, um, and the knitters, the crocheters and knitters have really commented on that a lot. So thinking a lot about how do you make the print book really special and feel like an object that you want to have, um, I think that's part of, a big part of how to make the print book relevant. Yeah. And we found that some people want both books for their craft books, we're hearing, that they want both both editions, I should say. Mm -hmm. so both for, digital and print. Yeah, it's like with a book like Cast on Bindoff, I've heard, well, I love having it on my iPad so when I'm traveling, I can reference it easily, mm -hmm. but I like having the physical book as well, as well and, at home next to my knitting basket. Mm -hmm. And what do you think about, um, I, I, well, I really admire the, the fact that you've decided to to create an ebook template in house that will allow you to create ebooks that are the way that you want them to mm -hmm. be. Um, 
And, but so what do you think about um, being able to make that ebook layered with love? So the way that the print book is, is really special right. um, and it's got special binding or end papers or rounded corners or whatever. So it's an object that you love and want to hold and want to buy. So what can people do? What can publishers do uh, for an ebook to layer that with love to make that something special and different and supplementary to something that you're going to get? as a hard copy. So it's, yeah. right, it can yeah. go the other yeah. way as well. It can go the other way. And we have a lot of conversations about that. I mean, I think our first step has been to make it just a more enjoyable reading experience so that it's very clear. One of the things though, that's that, um, on a book like cast on bind off that I mentioned before that we've commented on is that you can enlarge the photograph oh. in a way that a knitting photograph to be able to really enlarge it and, and zoom in on the hands that's an advantage that you can't do in a, in a print book. So um, being able to do that, um, also, I guess, having the cross-referencing in the book um, with with click-through, easy, easy click-throughs right. so is, is says, something. so it says, turn back to page 14 exactly. for so, this technique, and you click there, and right. it auto-turns we build that all, Yeah, 14, we build that right. all into the, into the e-book, that nice. so that's a nice mm-hmm. thing to do. Um, and other things that... We've talked about, you know, wouldn't it be great to have video uh, in in some of our ebooks? The challenge there has been, well, how do we market it? We don't really want to market the ebook at this point. The ebook is is really still ebooks are still being sold um, under the guise of the ebook version of the print book. Right. So it's it's. And I wonder, in the next five years, is that going to mm-hmm. be? Are we still going to be saying that? Yeah. Or is the ebook going to be a thing in and of itself? Exactly. Where the, there's an advantage of buying right. the ebook. Oh, not just yeah. I have the directions on my iPad when I right. travel, but I bought the ebook so I get, right. or I bought the print book so I get. Right. right? I get right. spiral binding. Yeah. Um, but I bought the ebook, so I get supplementary video exactly. content. Exactly. So I need yeah. both, right. or or one or the other. Right. But there's right. an advantage of each. Right. And right. I feel like we're still in that infancy yeah. of developing that. And I'm yeah. excited to see where it goes, but yeah. we're not there yet. No, and, and right now we're at that stage. Like, well, why would we invest in this video for the to add to the ebook? Where are we going to advertise that? You know, that the ebook has it's enhanced and it has this additional content to it. Do where do we put that, you know, of that right. information? Um, and does it make, does, will it detract from the print books? Right. I mean, so far, we really haven't seen a decline in our print book sales of having, with having ebooks. We just see that as the ebook is another version. You know, some people have compared it to like when mass market paperbacks first came out and people thought, oh no, they'll never be hardcovers again anymore. And it's just like, no, there's another place in the market. It's a different person or a different need that's being filled. So, It'll be interesting to see, like you were saying, if the ebooks really become something very different on them, uh, in and of themselves. I would love to see. I mean, there's part of me that has, when we first started talking about our ebooks, it's like, well, why would we try to create an ebook that is a mimic of the print book? You know, you almost want to start from scratch and think, what would really be. Right. How would you design it if you were designing it as an ebook originally? Well, I'm thinking about mass market paper books, paperback yeah. books, because um, so usually when you have a new book release, like a fiction book, it comes out in hardcover first, right. and it's only in hardcover. It's in hardcover only for yeah. what a year, yeah, something two years, like that. I don't know, something yeah. like, the first part, you know, you right. can only get it in hardcover, yeah. and so it's more expensive, and you get right, and then. 
Uh, and then I feel like the author, if it's a popular author, goes back on book tour again because their book was just released in paperback, right? right and I was right, like, exactly. no, it's Terry yeah, Gross. Right. She's interviewing this exactly. author of a yeah. book that's been out for already for two years. Right. But, you know, she's back on book tour because right. now the book's out in paperback. Yeah. So what if, I mean, this is a thought, right? Yeah. Like what if the book came out just in print? It was mm-hmm. out in print for two years. Mm-hmm. And then... Oh, it's you know she's back on book tour because right. now the book's in ebook form with supplementary video content or you know whatever right. else is right. you know an, an enhanced version. Yeah. And so yeah. the ebook is held back for a period of time, yeah. and then it's used like how you've um, you've gone back and had Carrie you know update her book for Instagram and right. adding that, and now it's re-released. It's a breath of fresh air into that book, and it can you know sales yeah. will get boosted again. Yeah. What if the ebook was used? Like right, that. Right. It's interesting. It, right? Yeah, That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. I mean, some of it has to do with ebook distribution, too, because right now, pretty much Amazon is the source for ebooks. I mean, we certainly offer it to Apple and other you know, distributors, but um, so, book tour, like independent bookstores, would be. You know? Right. So, and when I say you know, book tour, I don't necessarily no, mean I know she's traveling physical. the country. Yeah. But I do yeah. mean sort of, you know, whether it's promoting book tour it or whatever. Yeah. It's like yeah. a relaunch. Yeah. Let's yeah. put it that way. Yeah. Well, it was funny because one of our authors who's here said to me the other day, somebody, she said, somebody here came up to her on the street and said, Oh, I bought your book as an ebook. And she's like, Great. You know, like, do you want me to sign your iPad or right. something? You know, I mean, you know, cause she had just been doing this book signing and it was kind of like, well, you know, there's another downside. You there can't you do book you signing for the, e- you know, <laughs> so that's a good yeah. point. Hmm. I have to think about that. Yeah. Um, okay. So, uh, so you, I know you love to knit and so, and I just wondered what your, what project you're working on right now. What's in your, <laughs> what's in your project bag? Well, let's see. I actually, I just went to super buzzy this morning. Oh yeah. Super buzzy. It's <laughs> yeah. right here in, in Ventura. Ventura. Yeah. Is it walking yeah. distance from here? It's not. To you have to drive oh, a little bit, but a car? <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's it's just cool. a was little bit beyond that. It was, it's so great. So for people who don't yeah. know super Buzzy is. It's a fabric store. They specialize in Japanese import fabrics that are like so fantastic. Yes, they're like amazing. the fabric that I've gotten yes. there in the past, people always ooh and ah over yes. it because they're like, where did you find that? Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, you can find it. It's an amazing selection. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And they have a wonderful online store. And I'd always bought from them. I didn't realize I, they had a brick and mortar store. Until I got ready yeah. to come to yeah. Craftcation yeah. and I was like, hey. Right. Yeah. 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 And um, this is my third year at Craftcation. So this is my third trip to Super Buzzy. Woo-hoo. So um, yeah. So I've been working on, well, there was one project. I did find some fabric there that um, I've actually working on a project from our One Yard Wonders book for a, um, a friend who just had a baby, and there's a there's a play mat in there, and um, it was fun. I was able to get some um, washable um, fabric uh, to put on the back of that, so I'm I'm gonna I'm looking forward to sewing that when I get home. Nice. And uh, knitting, I've been working on a bunch of different things. I mean, one of them um, I sent you a photo of that Knit the Sky scarf that we're working on this wonderful book that is just so fun of all these. I've really gotten inspired by these creative creativity exercises using knitting as the vehicle. So the first project in this book by Lee Redmond, um, who lives in Berkeley, and she's had an online, she's had this project in her on her website. And we actually, that's how we actually found her. We One of us noticed this project on her website and then contacted her. But the project is to, Put together a basket, assemble a basket of yarn of, that, with balls of yarn that are all the different shades of color that you might see in the sky. And then every day, at maybe at the same time, take a look at the sky and then knit a stripe on your scarf that is the color of the sky today. 
And over the course of, I've started doing this in early February because I knew I was presenting the book at our sales conference um, two weeks ago. So I thought, well, I'll do a February, early March scarf. And being New England, it was like, oh, it's it's gray. It's gray. gray. (laughs) And now it's white again, snowing. And then it's gray. And then it's snowing. Oh, there's a little... I've heard it's snowing back where we live today. Did you hear that? I did hear that. We're just like on the beach and the palm trees. Yeah, I know. I didn't didn't call my husband because I didn't want to... But But that's um, really neat. But yeah, so I'm really excited about that. And she's got a lot of different projects like that. So I'm trying those out. And um, yeah, that's what I'm... That's what I'm working on right now. I also have a vest that I I was knitting on the on the plane. That's a pretty much straight knitting piece. So I always have a few projects going at once. <laughs> Super. All right. So um, let's just go and get a couple of um, your recommendations that I wanted to to talk to you about. So um, I'll let you pick. But um, I think let's see. Maybe we should do. Um, Hope Spinnery. Should we talk about that one? So um, so tell me about that. Yeah. So this was a, um, I, I discovered them at the Rhinebeck Sheep Sheep and Wool Festival, which is a wonderful event every fall in kind of our neck of the woods in the Hudson Valley. And um, it, it's a real gathering of knitters and fiber lovers and the sheep are there and the goats. And um, so Hope, Mill Spinnery is a place in Maine, and they have uh, wind-powered. Uh, I've never visited. I'd love to see what it's like, but um, wind-powered uh, spinnery, they say, and their yarns just have this wonderful texture to them. They're hand-dyed yarns and a wonderful soft feel to them. And um, I, I'd recently made a hat, finished a hat. Well, before the cold weather actually left, I was able to finish the hat uh, with the yarn that I had bought there uh, oh, nice. in, in October. So. Yeah. It's nice to work with a special material. Like it is, that. and to, and for the yarn to really have a have a story to it too. That's the source of the yarn, and um, and and it, and it really feels like one of a kind because of the the hand dyed look to it. Absolutely, you know. and you've been trying out some improvisational quilting. Oh yeah. So yeah. let's talk a little bit about those. You took some yeah. workshops with Denise Schmidt. Lucky yeah, you. I know. I've got. I've gone twice down to her studio in Connecticut, which has just been such a treat, and um, it's really fun. I mean, I've always been a sewer, and but I have to say, I'm I've not been a really fine um, piece work uh, quilter. But the improvisational quilting is just That's like, for me. this is me. Because I, I don't like cutting things in a straight line. No. I refuse. Yeah. And Denise doesn't, in her workshop, she doesn't let you use a straight edge. Woo-hoo! So it's just like, start rotor cuttering, you know, and then just start playing. The first um, one I took with her was her, her paper bag uh, project where you have different scraps, different size scraps and different paper bags. And you just start pulling and you, whatever fabric you get, you pick two pieces, you got to put those two together and just to free you up. And to, and to withhold judgment and to just play with what you have. And I got so inspired by that that then I went home and thought, well, I can do this. She did it with a lot of really ugly fabrics, and she did it on purpose to make everybody it cringe. All flashes. And it's like, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then we started putting them up on the wall, and she started saying, you know, look, this is interesting. See what what you've done here or the color, how the, how the – um, the color gradation is working here or what it's pulling out in the pattern. And it made you appreciate the, um, the kind of surprises that can happen with improvisation. And so I went home and I, I, I did that, but with my own fab, my own curated choice of fabrics, um, but still working with them, um, just spontaneously pulling them out of the bag. And I actually 
finished a quilt top, and I actually went and um, went to our local one of our local quilt shops and learned had a little class and using the long arm oh, wow. quilter and spent eight hours there yeah. quilting this queen size quilt. But my niece loves it, so oh, I gave it to good. her as her college graduation. Yeah, present. I love. So, oh, that's so sweet. Yeah. I love um, quilt shops that have. Long arm, like rental time yeah. uh, and training. Yes. You need training you and do. you need an assistant who's there yes, for technical exactly. difficulties. <laughs> yes. But I think that's yeah. a really neat way for a quilt shop to enhance what they offer, is yeah. to invest in those because you're not going to buy one. No. Um, and instead of having another artist work on it for you, this allows you to actually complete exactly. the quilt in the way that you wanted to. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and my my quilting uh, stitches reflected the improvisational. <laughs> they they matched the improvisational nature of the patchwork too. But but it's uh, full with your it was filled love with love exactly love exactly. So yeah. that's perfect. Yeah. Well, Deborah, it was great talking with you. Thank you so much for taking time away from the conference today to be on the Walsh and Apps podcast. It was my pleasure. Yeah, Thank and you. so where can we find Story online if we want to come and check it out? Yeah, so Story dot com is our our website and. Um, we're, uh, and we also have a we have a blog there, and we have a we do have a newsletter that you can sign up for. Um, so come find out about us. Super. And you've been listening to the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg, and I invite you to visit my blog, walshynaps.com, where you'll find helpful information for creative entrepreneurs, as well as tutorials and patterns for making stuffed animals and dolls. And if you enjoy the show, tell a friend about it. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.